Farmers are old and tired, probably have a lot of debt, but they got into it for some reason because soil and plants and the sunrise mm. flavors and smells that you can't describe because they're too beautiful thrills our hearts. Sometimes farmers need to remember why they started. If someone can go to them and say, we can create something beautiful and good, most farmers would be willing to take a pay cut to do it. This is the Sourdough Podcast, the show about the innovators, leaders, and creative trailblazers in our sourdough community and the stories behind the bread. On this episode of the Sourdough Podcast, I introduce you to my friend and local grain grower, John Eck. John describes the successes and failures of his first year of wheat farming, as well as what drew him to plant wheat in the first place. We talk about what it takes to do business in the wild west of wheat farming, and how his first harvest is already feeding students and transforming California schools. This episode examines our newly established local grain economy through the perspective of the wheat grower. I always love talking with John, and I'm so glad to be able to share this conversation with you. I'd like to take a moment to thank our latest contributor to the podcast, Elisa Kusel, out in Finland. Elisa is a bread book author and, by all accounts, an authority on all things Finnish rye bread. So go check her out. Thank you, Elisa. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, please consider contributing any amount by visiting the sourdoughpodcast.com and clicking on donate. You might even get a shout out on the podcast. And now, here's my interview with John Eck. Welcome to a special episode of the Sourdough Podcast. Tonight, I am sitting in the living room of John Eck. John is a third-generation farmer in my hometown of Turlock, California. This summer, John and his family harvested their first wheat crop. I'm here to talk to him about this latest project, how he got here, what he's learned this last year, and what he thinks the future holds for Eck Farms wheat and our local grain economy here in the Central Valley of California. John, welcome to the podcast, and uh, thanks for having me over. Well, you are welcome in my house. I'm glad we moved inside off the porch where it was a million degrees. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to to do this. I'm nervous. <laughs> um, As I said, that's what the beer is for. Yeah. Well, I've been pre-gaming hard so that we're ready to go. <laughs> um, but I have we have to start off with... Uh, something because i looked up your podcast on chartable do you know what this is i do yeah and uh i mean i just want to point out that you are in the u.s podcast you are we are i'm i am proud to be on podcast that's uh ranked 11,792nd <laughs> But in the world rankings, you're 13,084th That's place. right. 13,000th. So this is a, a real treat. Yeah. Um, our, our two listeners will really enjoy this. <laughs> it's uh, It's been a while in the making. Um, yeah. I've been wanting to get you on for a while, and you've been um, making me wait. Uh, but I think the timing is right. We... Um, you know, this summer you. Well, before we get into that, let, let's yeah. just let's 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 start at the beginning and 
I was born in 1983. Yeah, right. That's the beginning, I guess. Tell us about your background, uh, your family, your family farm. How, how long have you been at this farming game? Um, I was born on a farm. We farmed almonds, raised a few cows, had ostriches. Um, so I've been doing it since I was a kid. My folks are both from farming families. So pretty much my whole life. I, I got married and had other jobs, but I've been back on the farm now for, I'm going to guess, 10 years. I have a really hard time remembering things, so I'll just be making up a lot of facts. But I'm thinking <laughs> it's 10 years ago. I came back, uh, and so I work. Um, I'm a employee on my father's ranch. We, we farm few almonds we farm mostly sweet potatoes mm -hmm. and this last year we grew 16 acres of wheat as a rotational crop uh in our, on our some of our sweet potato ground so that's the short version how and so how long have you has your is it your third generation am i correct your third generation it's farmer? probably like 50th wow okay i mean i come from uh mennonite people so all the way back from Kansas and then go back to when they yeah. came over from Ukraine to back before that. I mean, it's generation, really? generation wow. back. That's crazy. <clears throat> How long have they, you guys been doing potatoes and almonds? I've been doing almonds since before I was born. My dad planted a first um, little orchard by his house. And sweet potatoes, uh, again, I don't know, maybe... Maybe... 20 years okay maybe 15 years not sure and that's just kind of you guys kind of got into sweet potatoes as a yeah how do you how do you specialize in one crop how did you find your way to potatoes i don't know i mean my my dad's always kind of been interested in various things and i think it was just one of those things where a friend of his was farming sweet potatoes and the first little place we planted i think we had just a couple acres and then a couple acres of um like yukon gold and that sort of potato and then we eventually ended up just growing sweet potatoes um so now yeah now we farm um about 180 acres of our own sweet potatoes and then we manage about that same amount uh, organic sweet potatoes for uh, another farmer. So you guys have been doing almonds for a long time. Yeah. Potatoes for your, I mean, in your lifetime, 20 years, you know, yeah. started in your generation. How did you stumble upon wheat? And, and why was that something, how was that something like you started being interested in? I'm not, I'm not completely sure. I was trying to think about that. But again, the caveat that I don't remember my children's middle, middle names. Um, but you guys, I, you've I been doing rye for you know as a cover crop, right? For that's true. We've grown rye um, over winter, or when a uh, block of potatoes gets rotated out, we would plant Merced rye, um, and it would we would get distant in the spring when we planted sweet potatoes. 
So I kind of had that. That was the only experience I had growing grain. <clears throat> My dad is from Kansas and grew up growing grain. But uh, I think it probably just came from starting a, a to keep a sourdough starter in my house and doing some baking on my own kind of got me interested in it. And then I really think that how long you went baking? I don't know. 10 years, maybe. I didn't know that. Maybe that long. Really? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I have to look back through Instagram. That's how I remember my life. (laughs) Me too. Uh, (laughs) But yeah. And then I think that it's, it really, it really took off or became real when I met you, because I think, what was that? Is it two years ago now? Yeah. Uh. Yep. Twenty nineteen. Uh-huh. Yeah. You were. I found you on Instagram somehow, and you were at the time trading bread for mm-hmm. whatever, and um, I was harvesting sweet potatoes just in Delhi, <laughs> so I brought some over, and. We got to talking and yeah, I felt. I remember I felt guilty, like I got the better end of the deal. You, you gave me several <laughs> paper bags of potatoes, and I gave you, I think, two loaves. Yeah, no, so. it, uh, everyone knows potatoes are gross and bread is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I don't know. We had we talked for like five minutes, and you said you should. You just said you should grow some grain. And that's all I kind of remember. Do you remember that conversation? I do vaguely. I I remember pushing that on you early. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. I got a farmer friend now. Um, yeah. Let's see if I can uh, inception him. <laughs> um, but what I do remember, that I think the the more awkward story for me at least is uh, is I got you uh, grain by grain a book. Yes. I had read this book, and then I think we had maybe talked, again, like you said, five minutes in my kitchen Yeah, trading uh, bread for potatoes. I went and bought another copy of this book to give to you. Oh, and man. it was, for me, it was a little uh, of a gamble. I was like, I don't really know this guy. Okay, He's a, he's a my... big, burly yeah. farmer type. This might be a little aggressive to, yeah. to give this guy a book. I don't really know. Also, him. especially since as in my memory, you lied to me and said that you had just finished reading it and you didn't need it anymore <laughs> and you were going to give it to me. And so in my memory, the, the you, truth comes out. Yeah. yeah. You catfished me hard <laughs> on that situation. <laughs> the truth was I had been tracking your, uh, acreage and mm-hmm. potato harvest, uh, for years. And yeah. well, I, I was very grateful but uh, I still haven't read that book. <laughs> I, I just, I can barely read. It, if, if they do an audio book, I'm in. Well, what the thing about that book that now that we've gone through this uh, whole journey of, of planting and harvesting and turning your wheat into flour, what reminds me of, of that story, of uh, Bob Quinn's story and your story is that... Uh, Wheat was not something you guys knew really, and wheat wasn't something your dad knew. This, right. you know, this is your family farm again. He's the elder Eck, and it, it was something you had to convince him of for a while. You, you had to prove it to him that this was something he wanted to do. What, tell me about that part of the uh, journey, that, like 
talking your dad into this. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to decide if he'll ever listen to this and how <laughs> how much I can brag. Um, it it honestly was not that hard of a sell. What it I um, I just did started doing some research, started looking online, seeing what people were selling, and then I went to him with the idea of, hey, can we take this ground that we're going to plant rye in anyhow? And plant wheat in it and it's going to cost all of you know we're gonna have to buy seed we're gonna have to put out compost we're gonna have to irrigate <clears throat> but um yeah he I, I don't know if it was just his nostalgia for growing grain as a kid mm. um and yeah i just i honestly feel lucky and thankful that he was willing to to take a chance on it and uh still taking a chance on it yeah but uh yeah he kind of just said all right you know check with me before you spend a bunch of money (laughs) and let's see you know keep me posted but it's kind of your project so both he and my brother uh were were willing to kind of step up in the sweet potatoes and in the almonds so that I could take time to to grow some grain and um and otherwise I don't think it it would have happened. Yeah, I mean so there was a bit of a I'm kind of a gamble. There was, you know, a cost yep. to be paid up front. I mean, obviously the cost of the grain, but just like the like you said it sounded like your your dad and your brother had to step up do a little extra work so you can experiment on this. Uh, why do you think that was a gamble uh, worth taking in, in the long run? Or It's only been a year, but why yeah. was that something you guys were willing to do? I mean, I think it's a mix of things. One is just, I mean, trying to stay in business. Mm-hmm. You know, we... So I was looking for another cash crop, another thing I could stack on the same acreage that I already have and try to stay profitable. Hmm. Um, so there was that aspect of it. It had to at least in some kind of imagined future be able to make money eventually. Mm-hmm. There's no use going broke on a good idea. So uh, what what was the idea? What was the good idea? What What was like the seed of the the thing that said this could work? If we do it right, what was that? I mean, the selling point was just having having looked at what other people were doing, the very few people that were doing it, and seeing that it kind of seemed to be working. But that's not really why I wanted to do it. Um, I think I could have picked anything, but honestly, I think I just kind of enjoyed the community around bread and grain that I had already kind of seen bits and pieces of, you know, through baking myself and then Mm -hmm. following other people and then meeting, um, uh, Bonnie up in Modesto and then meeting you and the whole just communal aspect of, of bread that I would bake and give to my neighbors and my friends and that feeling of connection, Mm -hmm. you know, both in our sweet potatoes and in our almonds, it's um we sell into large markets and our our 
what we produce um, just flows into this giant stream mm-hmm. of other people's stuff, and no one, no one cares if I do a good job, if I have more sustainable practices mm-hmm. on my farm, mm-hmm. if I care and labor over trying to make the best thing that I can, it just becomes anonymous in the in the market. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have a better connection. I wanted to grow food and uh, and have people that I knew eat that food. And that, strangely, like, I wanted that accountability. Like, mm-hmm. I wanted someone to be able to come to me and say, hey, this wasn't good. Or this was good. And um, so it kind of... <laughs> It's been interesting. The grain is is one aspect of that, but it has led to a change in my own thinking in terms of our farming practices and where I want to see us go in the future. Um, you know, we're pretty straightforward, conventional farm, mm-hmm. um, but little by little, I've already seen that we were able to make some changes and and farm in a way that I think is better for. Our environment and our town and we're talking about uh, regenerative farming is that the the label yeah i mean i we're not anywhere close to that but we started adding in cover crops reducing uh pesticide use and we're heading in that direction mm-hmm. um you know we're we've been a farm for a long time we're i don't know we're we're on some in some ways a really small farm in some ways a really big farm and uh but it's going to take some time to to make some changes but that has been the most exciting thing for me is is just seeing that future and being ex- and being and looking forward to it yeah um a lot of modern farming and I'll just I'll speak from my experience I'm sure other people have had different experiences, but my experience has been that it is kind of prescriptive, kind of paint by numbers. It's a lot of doing what your chemical salesman tells you to do when he tells you to do it. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know, maybe I'm somewhat like my dad. I just like want to try it a different way. I want to do something different. So yeah, that's... Um, that has been the kind of surprising and, and most rewarding part of of growing a crop and selling it to people who actually drive out to my farm and yeah. pick up two bags of grain to go and bake um, back in their town than they're selling to their neighbors. <clears throat> and uh, and I can actually, with with honesty, say, hey, this was grown without chemicals. This yeah. was grown just using compost and... Um, I know that there's nothing there, you know, there's not a health risk in this. And then we're also growing these varieties that are old. Mm -hmm. Um, they've been grown in California, some of them for hundreds of years, meaning that they have adapted to our low water environment. So that means we're not irrigating very much. We're able to produce them. uh, What varieties did you decide on this season, last season? We made the unwise choice to grow four different varieties on 16 acres. So <laughs> we grew uh, mostly 
mostly Sonora. Um, and that's if that's kind of a, a pretty popular one. People kind of, there's some name recognition with that one. Comes out of Sonora, Mexico, and um, super well adapted to California, and kind of a good, good versatile grain or flour. Not actually that great for bread. I think is that right? Uh, it has. It's I understand lower gluten yeah. content, so it's a lot of people use it for pastries and cookies and stuff like that. Yeah, but, but love, good, good as an additive uh, to bring in that flavor stuff. So mm-hmm. we grew that, and then we grew um, six acres of rye. Um, we would you, would you, you have the experience of growing rye previously? Yeah, and this the, this rye was totally different. It's a bruisey rye, uh, and it uh, it just the growth habit was totally different. We had tons of weeds in there. I thought the whole thing was lost. I lit part of the field on fire to see if that would help. It didn't. Um, <laughs> to so, kill the weeds. To kill the weeds. <laughs> Not just out of anger. Uh, and then we grew one acre of a Durham uh, flower. Mm-hmm. And Durham Iraq is the name of the variety. And then one acre of Wit Walkerlene. That's my best guess at how to pronounce that. Sounds right to me. Just call it wit from here on mm-hmm. out. And uh, that that variety is actually somewhat similar to Sonora, but it comes out of South Africa, has a little bit better, a little bit stronger gluten. Um, you know, all the all the proteins were were off the charts this year for some reason that I don't understand. So I don't know exactly what it'll be like on a normal year, but um, yeah, so couple little one acre strips and then a eight acre plot six acre plot and we grew it we were planning to grow it dry land mm-hmm. and then california drought being what it is it was extremely dry land and it almost died so we quick put together some sprinklers and were able to go out and put a couple of irrigations on save the crop but it probably produced about between 30 and 50 percent of what it the of what it should have on a normal year. Okay. I, now, that was the part of your equation that I thought was, well, I, I thought personally as a non-farmer, I thought it was really smart to like grow a few different varieties your first year, experiment, see what worked. Again, you never know what the weather is going to be like, what the you know precipitation yeah. level is going to be. Uh, it was extremely low this last winter. And, uh, but again, we're again we're in the Central Valley, California. You know, literally the fruit breadbasket of the the world, the country <laughs> at least. Um, and we can grow anything here. And but we because we are uh, mainly irrigated, most of the valley is irrigated. We can we can grow things that don't want to naturally grow here because we're basically a desert. We get like eleven inches of rainfall. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah normally and so um what i what i found so fascinating again is that you know we live in california a desert and yet we're able to grow something like this and this again this was a rotational crop for you this wasn't your main crop this was something you put into and like you said kind of the the point of of the cover crop is to reg- you know keep the soil healthy and alive and keep all the nutrients in there replenish the nutrients even keep the <clears throat> all the fungi and all the good uh, 
micronutrients in there and microfauna. And uh, because we're in California, we're able to do that in a way that other places in the country might not be able to do. We have that irrigation back uh, backup yeah. just in case. And that was something you guys were able to utilize. Yeah. I mean, it was lucky that we were on a place that had a well. Um, you know, wheat grows. We, we planted super late like after Christmas, in the, right at the December 29th, I think. Um, so if you have canal water, the water's been out of the canal for weeks by then. Mm-hmm. So we happened to be in a place that had access to groundwater, and so we were able to use that. But, yeah, I mean, it makes it it's the only thing that made it possible. And I know that even in California, there's a lot of dry land wheat that's grown. And so, um, you know, for some folks that didn't have access to irrigation, I mean, they they lost, some people lost everything or, mm-hmm. you know, they harvested such a small crop. Again, um, we're in central California where it's historically drier, where there are, there are, I think there's more acreage of wheat grown in Northern California because they mm-hmm. have the, the rainfall, but because we're in central California, we don't. And, and so we kind of actually match Mediterranean climates more. Um, but because it's so dry, we've needed to depend on irrigation historically. And so yeah. that was a tool you had that these Northern California wheat farmers did not have this last year. I suppose so. Maybe it's like having a living in San Francisco and and not have an air conditioner. Most of the time you don't need it, but when you do, <laughs> you really wish you had it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, precipitation was a hurdle you had to uh, overcome, which you were able to with irrigation. Maybe I think maybe next year we'll talk about you know what are you, you going to do different next year, uh, in a few in a few minutes here. But as far as hurdles go, what were some of the other hurdles? you had to overcome this year, your first wheat harvest year? Well, I never put a wheat seed in the ground. <laughs> and I think sometimes uh, sometimes there could be the perception that uh, if you're a farmer, you can just grow things. But um, that's that at least not the case for me. And... I didn't know anything. I didn't know what what day, how deep, which seeds, if I knew which seeds, where I would get them from. And so I think early on, you put me in contact with Claudia Carter at California Wheat Commission. Mm-hmm. Former guest. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is just, yeah, having her in my corner mm-hmm. this whole year yeah. has been wonderful she's amazing she's amazing so she knows a lot of things and what she doesn't know she knows six people who you need to call (laughs) yeah and so um so she just started i mean i i look back through my emails it would just be every day hey john here's six people their emails their phone numbers um, or i'm introducing you to this guy call this farmer um, I know there's a guy over here who's done such and such, raised that grain that you're talking about. You know, try that. So I just started kind of cold calling people. Um, Tom from up at Mile High Mills. Um, Dave from Cape Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like Grain R&D over in Arizona. Just... <clears throat> um, 
calling or emailing or messaging them on Instagram. What a resource. I mean, <laughs> his, you, yeah, that's it, amazing. And were they uh, accessible? Were they oh, yeah. happy to talk with you? Or Yeah, that was, again, just such a such a blessing for lack of a better word like i felt like i got this huge response of of encouragement mm-hmm. and and knowledge mm-hmm. so i would just um stay up at night reading <laughs> things just like tr- googling how to grow grain and then, and then oh. wait, I did that too when I when I did wheat in my backyard. You did the same thing. Yeah, that's uh, that is the very very unsexy beginning to this is googling how how do farming. Um, so, and then just through talking with those people, I found out a lot of the things that I don't know, and that's always the hardest thing is you don't know what you don't know. And so I didn't know even the questions to ask. So mm-hmm. I would call people up and just and just throw throw myself at their mercy and say, I know nothing. Please explain <laughs> to me like I'm your son that you're hoping will take over your farm <laughs> and uh, teach me. And, and so many people offered just advice and explanation of how what they did. Um, and so... But that's not always the case. I, I feel like... In- in a lot of industries, it's like, I learned this the hard way. You're going to have to learn it the hard way. Or yeah. this is uh, privileged information. Like, you don't just get this information. That wasn't your experience. It wasn't. And maybe it's just because, I mean, there, there are people that have been doing this, have been trying to work on local grain, California grown, um, you know, small grain economy type type stuff for years and years but i think there it's still like the wild west like there's no it, it's uh it's word of mouth it's who you know it, you're you're trying to make connections with these people there's no there's no um big you know with, with almonds you could plant an orchard sell to uh you know your your steps would be laid out from you're going to hold with this person, then you're going to process with that person, and that's who you're going to sell to. And it's just so it's such a mature market mm-hmm. that all that stuff is laid out, mm-hmm. and none of that is, um, at least that I have found yet in in doing small scale grains. Mm-hmm. So um, it was just it was phone conversations, emails, um, rarely getting to meet people in person, but here and there, sometimes getting to meet someone in person. So, I mean, the first hurdle was, was that knowledge, then trying to find seed. I knew I wanted to grow something. um, I knew I wanted to grow heritage wheat, stuff that's loosely called heritage wheat, something old, nothing that is patented or GMO. Why was that a, a priority for you? Uh, it seemed romantic. Um, we haven't, you know, we haven't talked about like the dollars and cents of it all yet. You know, like, uh, part of the equation I would imagine would be, you know, cause like I said, you, you used to grow rye as a cover crop and just till it back into the dirt. Why, you know, when, when it comes down to, uh, 
dollars and cents here. What what was the allure? Like, can you make a profit in theory on heritage grain versus commodity grain? Or can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. I don't know anything about commodity grain. I'm trying to learn. But other than that, you don't make a lot of money. I think unless you're doing tens of thousands of acres or something. I think it's difficult, especially in California, where land pri- where land prices, inputs, labor, everything is so extremely high. I think you might have a chance at it fitting into some kind of crop rotation thing in the in in other parts of the country. But I think it's difficult in California. And prices aren't great, and you sell most of it as animal feed. Very, mm-hmm. very little of it ends up um, being consumed by humans, and so the price is very low. Um, but I would, I would look at what you know, little, uh, like smaller scale mills, like Grist and Toll. I, I go on their website and say, well, "What are they selling for?" And they're selling for these prices. I'm like, "Oh, I could make, I could actually." That would be profitable. That would be better than break even mm-hmm. um, if I could get those prices. <clears throat> so, um, you know, again, what I was comparing it to was the was a cover crop, which we grew for the for all the benefits that you mentioned, but not really for cash. Mm-hmm. And so, I was looking for something that I could grow that would cover a lot of those same soil building bases but they would also make a little bit of money in the year that we were because we're still having to pay rent it seems to me like it's like this it has so much potential in california where again there we get we really it seems like tax our land like as far as burden it with like just heavy rotation like tomatoes in potatoes in you know, just we're, there's always something, at least from driving through the countryside as, as I do often, it seems like we we really like put our land to the test and uh, eventually you're going to have to give it some a, a rest. You're going to have to put maybe some cover crop in there just to um, fallow it for the, I don't know, the winter or something. And if you can do that, but at the same time, make some money off of that in between time i'm using some very non-farmer language here uh it just it seems like it's a missed opportunity in a way it's like 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 you're saying like it blows my mind that before you used to grow rye you know grow it to maturity and then just till it back into the dirt eventually you said you actually um started to harvest it and, and seed it so you can have some seed for next the next season yeah um it's it's a as a non-farmer that seems like um a, a crazy concept to just like till a, a a crop under the dirt yeah you know that's it's not it's not the uh, again Forgive me for speaking in broad generalities that I don't understand, but this has been my experience that um, the the biggest problem that we have is is for us is that we will farm sweet potatoes on a piece of ground year after year after year 
sometimes for many years at a time. And that, of course, depletes that ground of the specific nutrients that sweet potatoes are hungry for. And it builds up uh, diseases in the ground that are specific to sweet potatoes. And what is often done is what's called a bear fellow, where it's just you disc at the end of the, of the harvest and everything sits as uh, open, you know, bare dirt. You don't grow anything. Don't you grow don't plant anything. anything. Yeah. And so in putting in the rye, you know, rye is, it harvests the leftover nutrients into its body and holds it from leaching out through the soil in the winter rains and its roots are slightly allopathic, so they're going to put out um, a sort of uh, toxic exudates that will um, suppress parasitic nematode populations. And then when you work that carbon and nitrogen back into the soil, you get uh, a flush of biological activity, and then you plant your new soup crop into that. So seeing that as a that kind of crop rotation is, is super valuable. And I was just trying to figure out how I could do that same thing, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, be able to cover the cost of rent at least. Yeah. And I would, you know, the more crop rotation, the more diversity, the more diversity you can create on farmland, the stronger that ground will be. And so, you know, this is one step in that direction for us, but it's it's that's the goal. Why don't you think more farmers are doing this? More non-wheat farmers aren't aren't trying to rotate in a crop that makes money, uh, rotate in some rye or wheat or whatever it is. Why don't you think they are using this? It seems like a, a tool that's there that could benefit their soil, that could benefit their staple crop. But at the same time, like you said cover just cover the rent you know like pay for itself maybe make you some extra money in the off season why aren't more people doing this well i can't speak for other farmers everyone's got their reason i just would say that why it's been difficult for me is that i like to uh <laughs> i like to have this i like to have downtime in the winter Okay. And it is more of an intensive management. And then also it's it's nerve-wracking to do something you haven't done before. So once you have established your procedure and your your system, now you've done it for 5 20 years, it's just hard to change. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to look like an idiot <laughs> to your neighbors. I mean, I've got what well, we have in all of my bragging here. We haven't talked about the nine acres of turkey red that I tried to plant this year as well. That just completely died. Um, luckily, it's way off the beaten path, and so no one saw it. But we, I had a nine acre block, and I got this harebrained idea that I was going to try to plant turkey red. Um, and so I, I just worked and worked and found this great uh, family that are growing it out in the Midwest in Kansas. I think they're in Kansas and they shipped me some and I planted it and I was all proud of it. I put pictures on Instagram. I was all bragging about how awesome <laughs> it was. And then Ella's, 
Allison from UC Davis is a part of their like breeding program there. Maybe she runs the place. I don't know. She sent me a very gentle email that was basically <laughs> like, uh, yeah, you, you, this was a dumb, really dumb idea. And uh, it's not going to work because it's uh, winter grain. Uh, it has to have a certain amount of freezing days. And, of course, we haven't had any of those. You can so, only grow it in extremely cold climates. Yeah, it, ha- it has to. Exactly. <laughs> So uh, I should take some pictures of that and, and put online because it's just um, a really sad patch of weeds at the moment. <laughs> but I think it's it's those it's those reasons. Yeah. Um, and then I think if you are making money, like in sweet potatoes, it was definitely easier to make money ten years ago, twenty years ago than it is now mm-hmm. and um if you you know if you've made all the money you need to make in five months of growing season and then you're trying you have this whole backlog of stuff you need to get through in the winter why would you try something else okay yeah um and i think the other part of it is just there is no you have to be willing to blaze that trail a little bit yeah I mean, there's no infrastructure in place. There's no market necessarily. I mean, again, if somebody knows about a market and a system and someone who will come pick it up and clean my grain for me and pay me $5 a pound, please email me. (laughs) But it was just... A lot of these systems aren't in place yet. That's right. And that's another one of these hurdles that we've talked about. You've had to overcome this last year you know and so we've planted the grain we've got some of it to grow uh the ones especially the ones that are more uh appropriate for this climate (laughs) um you had to irrigate a few a few acres just because uh it was a particularly dry season but you've got what 15 20 acres of of different varieties of wheat uh came to full maturity um, what year did we, or what month did you go and um, harvest? I think it was the end of June. End of June, okay. Does sound right? Yeah, yeah. By the way, I, I had a blast, like, uh, tagging along as your... Oh, um, man, that was great. As your wannabe farmer, like, uh, no way, protege, man. like... You had the flannel shirt, you had the whole work. I put on my flannel shirt, I put on my uh, California wheat hat yeah. that Claudia gave me, and... Uh, my, my work jeans, you know, so I, I put on my, my farmer outfit and uh, you let me tag along. It was a blast for uh, for the planting. And then, um, you know, I, I, I drove out there to check it. You know, I enjoy at least watching your, your Instagram feed, like watching it grow. And then on uh, once harvest day came, you had the combines out there. Yeah. Um, and that was a lot of fun. That was a blast. Just yeah. I took my daughter out there. We got to watch the guy go through with this enormous machine. Uh, it seems somewhat out of place and you could basically harvest an entire variety in one pass. Yeah. But that, that was so much fun. It was, it was like a celebration in a way, just like, absolutely. Uh, well, but that was another interesting part. If I remember it was that the guy who owned the combine, correct me if I'm using the wrong words here, uh, combine, uh, he had never harvested wheat before. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> yeah, because we were standing there for a long time, just 
talking and he kept stopping and getting out and adjusting the machine and never could figure out what he was doing. And then we went over there and I asked him, he said, well, he said, I've never, honestly, he said, I've never cut wheat before. I don't know how to do it. I don't know when, when I'm going to be able to do it again. So do you mind if I take some extra time? This is not something he told you beforehand. No, no, no. He's like, do you mind if I take some time to try and like, I'm trying to adjust my machine to get it really clean. I'm like, well, buy it by all means. Please. That's great. But uh, and he was like, he was he was pumped, and he had this you know huge thirty foot head case combine, and he uses it to harvest all of the the rye that's grown by sweet potato farmers, basically. Okay. And so yeah, it was just it was it was uh, it was surprising, but I guess it kind of made sense. Just in our little area, there's not a whole lot of wheat. I wanted to take a quick break from our interview to remind you of a great organization doing great work in our sourdough community. The Bakers in Need Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit organization founded by Tyler Kartner at Wire Monkey Shop. This fund was created to help bread bakers suffering financial duress due to the coronavirus, and since the start of the pandemic, the Bakers in Need Fund has given a total of 40 grants totaling over $10,000 to our baking community. When the pandemic is over, the fund will remain to support bread bakers in need. We love the bread baking community and being a part of it and want to give back. If you'd like to learn more about the Bakers in Need Fund, make a donation or apply for a grant, please go to bakersinneed.org. Now, back to the show. Yeah, and then after we harvested, we harvested into uh, a tender with an auger that I borrowed from a guy and then into bags and then those bags my landlord bill helped me haul those over to his house then from there we brought them to my to our yard my my folks place and then we had to have that grain clean so it's in big 2,000 pound sacks um it's chock full of weed seeds and straw they did a pretty good job getting it clean but i i mean it was cleaner than a lot of the stuff i've seen before you know yeah they he, he did a good job with his combine uh but then we had to have a clean and i don't have a cleaner and i didn't know anyone close who had a, you know a cleaner of of any kind so uh i finally i think i from from dave up at cape valley mills i think he's the one who suggested dixon seed i don't know if that's true or not but we ended up finding this place up in Glen. We had to hire a truck. Uh, they brought a truck with a walking floor, which is like this mechanical thing that that you can put a, a pellet on the end of it and it will slowly work it into the truck and work it back out. It didn't work at all. So I just pushed them all in there with my forklift. <laughs> and I, I said, are you going to be able to get these out right? And the driver's like, nah, probably not, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> so then he drove that up all the way up to Glen, three and a half hours. The closest place we could find a seed company up there, um, Dixon Seed. They were terrific, mm-hmm. and they they grow a bunch of um, you know vegetable seeds and that kind of thing. They're used to running small lots, and so they ran our stuff through. Then I drove up there with our flatbed, picked it all up. They had it bagged up. Brought it back, stuck it in our shop, and uh, 
started selling to folks. Yeah. And again, it's like, I love the picture that you're painting of, you're just putting all of these pieces together, like, on at, on the moment, like, uh, on the spot. You know, like, you're, this is not a tried and true method like almond farming or potato farming that you, you and your family have done for decades. This is something, like, totally new. Like, this is the first time you've done it. There's not a lot of people in California doing it, less people in the Central Valley doing it. And so every step of the way, this is like something that you've had to research a ton, read a ton about, connect with people, um, leaned heavily on on Claudia Carter and all these resources of of people uh, who are been very generous with their time and, and, you know, their own research and hard learned lessons. Uh, And so it's just, I've, for me, I've just, I've been totally in awe of like what you've been able to do and just totally like um, impressed with like just the work you've put into this. Like um, there's, it's one thing to like have a passion project, you know, but it's another thing to like put the work that you've put into this and like, uh, I just, I've just loved like having the conversations we've had through the whole process, and I'm just every like again, I've always, I'm always so impressed with like just how much research you've you've put into this. Yeah, well, thanks. I, I, yeah, it's been uh, it's been really enjoyable, and uh, <laughs> I, I, even now talking about this, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking. I hope a real wheat farmer never listens to this <laughs> and is like, who is this idiot? Or or that I, in the future, like 20 years from now, will look back on this and say like, oh my God, <laughs> stop talking, please. But <laughs> but there, I just realized early on that if I was willing to be uh, the dumbest person in the room yeah. and like ask, ask the questions that I... <laughs> I would just email people with questions and they would write back and say, oh, actually, that's not even the way that we think about it. Mm-hmm. You should think about it way over here on this other side. And that was tremendously valuable. And the generosity of, of people has been has been huge. And yeah. I, every person that I've talked to, so now there's been people coming out to the farm, like I said, picking stuff up. I've delivered some grain in the back of my truck. I've met people halfway to their, you know, an hour drive on my part, an hour drive on their part, meeting them, giving them grain. Um, we've had people drive down. And almost to a person, it really quickly turns to that that aspect of it, which is uh, I got into this because I was interested in baking, milling, growing grain. And what I found was a whole community of people yeah. who are interested in helping each other out, teaching, learning, and that's been tremendous. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that was my next question. Like, you know, what what's been the most rewarding part of this experience? You're talking about like, uh, and this makes sense to me. Is like you talked about this earlier, but almonds, potatoes are things that just kind of get put into this ocean of other potatoes and almonds, and you never have that connection. And uh, you know, all we've been selling some of your flour. Um, uh, at my bake, you know, bakery pop-ups, and 
and people will post pictures of the cookies they made with with egg grains you yeah. know and i just i can't imagine how yeah. like rewarding that oh, how good great. that feels you know that's great uh i yes it's great and also mail some of those to me <laughs> yeah yeah what are you doing obviously i've made you who you are so <laughs> please send me some bread yes uh <laughs> one a uh, 10% taxation on cookies and, <laughs> and bread made. Um, let's talk a little bit about the grain to school movement. Um, this is something all, Claudia has also been like kind of a forerunner or major like mover in as far as um, the California's uh, Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. Um, this was legislation that was passed. I don't know what year it was, but basically it's like we want we want to have a certain percentage of whole grains in our in California school lunches. The money is there, um, but the farmers aren't, you know, and the whole grain isn't. And, and that's where people like Claudia with the California Grain Commi- Wheat Commission come in. Um, and she's there, like, she's like your advocate as far as like, let's, let's you know, really uh, support California wheat farmers let's yeah. create more california wheat farmers let's give them the support that they need um that's something you got involved with this even even in your first year you haven't even had a harvest yet but you committed to um this project can you tell us a little bit about it yeah uh, again this is one of those situations where i joyfully and happily get sucked into the vortex that is Claudia Carter <laughs> because it um she has been this is something she cares deeply about and like you said that California has and other places have have these initiatives to gr- create to get the goal being get healthy food into school lunches mm-hmm. and they want to purchase directly from farmers if possible as local as possible all that <clears throat> but in terms of implementation it has been through the energy of school food service directors um it's just local efforts there's there's not a big administration that makes it happen it's local districts and and the the individual you know people on staff at a school who just who care about it and make it happen mm-hmm. so um, there are two schools um, down in Southern California, close to San Luis Obispo. They're rural. They're out in the boondocks. But what Claudia has been able to do in working with them is create these programs where the schools have now gotten the funds through a grant to um, get stone mills placed in their schools um, pasta extruders. They, Claudia and her staff have developed these, um, a curriculum for the school and a process for building school gardens. So the students are actually going to, on a small scale, grow wheat, mill it themselves, hmm. wow. create breads and pastas for the school lunch program and actually be able to distribute that at other schools within their district. And it's just tremendous. And then in order to actually meet the volume needs that they need, that they need in order to do this for their school lunch program, 
um, farmers like myself and a, and a few others were um, a, as a part of that grant where they purchased grain from us. Mm-hmm. So that's the extent of my own personal role in it. But it it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, it, when <laughs> I can't imagine. I, I think Claudia said that it is actually the first school in the nation to get this, to get a mill and a plastic through the whole system that they wow. set up. Yeah. So it's pretty pioneering. And, and this is like one of those new American stone mills, right? I think that's yeah, what like, they want. Yeah. I think every, you know, uh, bakery artisan baker <laughs> yeah. across the country is like jealous and, and wants one of these in their own bakery. Um, yeah. but we're bringing it to California. We're putting it in one of our schools yeah. and, uh, you're supplying the wheat. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tremendous. I I guess you know, in terms of fruits and vegetables, those things seem to be more readily the schools are able to purchase them easily, but grain is unique in the fact that it has to be processed before it's useful. Mm-hmm. So there's the extra hurdle and so it's been very difficult for schools to be able to to um fulfill that mandate of having whole grains in their lunches. And so that is what Claudia is trying to create is to be that something that she could then take to districts and say, here's your curriculum. Mm-hmm. Here's your system for a garden. Here's your, uh, you know, equipment list that you're going to buy. Um, here's your farmer contact and just be able to hand them this whole package to be able to, because, you know, the health benefits of, of whole grains are, are well known yeah. and well established and important. So yeah. it's a it's a great thing. Well, well, you know, my last guest was a, a historian, a sourdough historian, and we were talking about how you know wheat, you know, a bread went from something that every you know uh, it was a high society to have white flour. You know, like only the rich had white flour, <laughs> and the poor had these whole grain loaves. And now in modern days, it's, you know, it's flip-flopped. And now, you know, Wonder Bread and the like are, you know, what you find on the supermarkets. And they're just not healthy. And it's the rich people or, you know, the people who can afford it who are getting these, you know, $8 artisan loaves with, you know, uh, locally grown grain. But uh, what I love about this is that we're, you know, we're bringing it back to like public schools and we're making it like, uh, a healthy option that kids can learn about that can make themselves uh, learn in the cl- classroom like have this connection to like their food and um, kind of create these healthy lifestyles healthy patterns of living and eating and and so it's it's really cool to like see see all of this like working in unison and uh, yeah just kind of like again this is like our local grain economies like uh, benefiting more than just like the baker and the the miller and the grower, um, sustaining and and feeding our community. So, um, that that's to me that's like the coolest part of all of, all of this. Um, yeah. How do we get this in our hometown and Turlock? We, we, you know, we've talked a little bit. We had a powwow with um, Bonnie, Alchemy Bread, and, and Claudia came out, and uh, we met in, at Bonnie's house in Modesto and. How do we how do we get this type of program going in Turlock? I have no idea. <laughs> I I'm like the 
I think my role is to be like the redneck cousin who who gets taken to the dance. <laughs> like it just I don't know someone who understands policy yeah. and understands how to to work inside that system. Uh, go for it, make mm-hmm. it happen. I mean, I want it for my kids are here in school here in Turlock, and I mm-hmm. I would love that to be a part of their experience. Yeah. Um, but I don't I don't really know how to do it. Well, the fact that you have already done it in another school district in in, in on the Central Coast in San Luis Obispo. I think is a good first step. And, you know, I, I've talked about, I told you, you know, like, you know, the mayor here in Turlock is one of my customers. And <laughs> if I can, you know, use this uh, political leverage I have right. with my bread now to uh, whisper it and you know, get this message into her, her yeah. ear. Um, well, I met her once, so we're basically best friends. So yes. I think we can, uh, we, should, we should have a talk with her. I think. Mayor Amy, shout yeah. out to Mayor Amy. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, man, that would be, you know, my, my daughter just started uh, her kinder, kindergarten is, is now in the Turlock uh, Unified School District as well. So like, I can't think of anything more rewarding than to like get your grain um, turned into some, you know, nutritious food in, in our in our own city and our own kids uh cafeterias yeah and and i mean i don't understand i don't understand how all of it works but i do have a picture in my mind about a a possible future where where food is grown locally and has a local flavor mm. and uh personality and it's then transformed by local bakers and chefs and you know eaten by our kids and our families and given away to people and the connection that all of that brings to inside of a inside of a city and in, and um and a region mm. I think could be could be really helpful. It feels life giving, honestly. It feels like okay, we're the the resources are staying local. There it would be a way to provide work for people that is honorable and good yeah. and satisfying. Um so you know, I mean, that sounds pretty grandiose for sixteen <laughs> acres of wheat, but that's that's honestly how I feel. It's the first step, and, and you're, we're doing it. You know, it's like the, these are conversations I've had on the podcast with other people in different states, like Don Don Guerra and uh, Arizona and New Mexico. We got uh, Hayden Flower. You know, these are other conversations I've had with other guests, and in my mind, I'm like, I've always thought like, wouldn't that be great? That'd be so fun to like. Uh, so fulfilling to have that in our own community, um, but you know, whatever. I'm just, I'm just this guy making sourdough, and now, and now you, you know, we, now you're doing it, man. You know, like we, and now we have this uh, local grain economy going, and, and that's where it's got to start somewhere. And and the the foundation in my mind has been set for for something like what you're talking about to to be actualized, and so. Yeah, I'm excited and I'm inspired by this last year and uh, kind of just, yeah, the ambition you had and the guts you had to, to 
make something like this happen. So um, we're, we're moving in that direction, John, and I'm yeah. excited about it. <laughs> so uh, what what are you looking forward to next season? We, we've you've overcome some hurdles. You've learned some lessons. And that's the beauty of farming in, in my non-farmer opinion is that like you're just building on every year. Every year you're learning lessons and you're applying it to the next harvest. What what are some of those lessons you're looking forward to applying? I mean, I'm just happy to have one year of of harvesting something. Um, <laughs> so there will be next year we'll be starting miles, even though we have so much to learn yet, we started miles ahead of where we started this year. So that is just, will just be that much more enjoyable. But in terms of what we're, what the next step is, we're looking to increase our acres. Um, we're hoping to go from 50% of the crop we expected to somewhere much higher <laughs> than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, increase our yield so that we'll have more to sell i mean we are currently sold out um, that's awesome that's awesome we, it, I, we're in the middle of sweet potato harvest and that's mostly what i've been paying attention to and then all of a sudden i just realized like oh we don't have anything left we literally have sold everything <laughs> and <clears throat> so i would like to have more to yep. be able to continue to to sell to people more so more acreage does that mean uh do you plan on changing your um, irrigation strategy, or I think we we'll, we would we would pay closer attention and and irrigate a little bit differently, but we'd still try to keep it as minimal as possible. Yeah. Um, but definitely a a field that has access to groundwater is a must. Mm-hmm. So yeah, increase our acres. But the the other difficult thing is the lack of infrastructure. And specifically, uh, cleaning, bagging, milling, and then distribution and access to markets. All of that stuff is sort of a roll your own at the moment. Mm. And so we're, we're trying to figure out what that looks like for us. If we on our farm, on a small scale, can address some of that, try to start building some of that infrastructure... Um, that, that is a, a dream, <laughs> Yeah. but it, it kind of, everything kind of has to happen at the same time. You need a farmer to justify someone starting a elevator. And if someone starts an, uh, a mill, they need someone who already had started an elevator, who already had a farmer. So everything has to happen at the same time. Um, so bits and pieces will add a little few acres of wheat then maybe if we have someone who can add a mill someone who can add a cleaning facility and try to bring that stuff in locally and um where there's much easier access than we have had this year are you are there ideas or things in the works to bring those just to ek farms any of those uh any of that hardware or milling equipment I mean, we're talking about it. <laughs> uh, I want you to mill my flour for me for my bakery, John. Is what I'm getting. Well, that's at. what I, that, I would love. That. Uh, yeah, we're 
we're trying to put together a plan that would we want to. Yeah. I can say that much. I don't know for sure if it will happen, but we would love to be able to grow the wheat, take it to our cleaning shed and yeah. clean it, take it over to the mill and mill it, and uh, have it available for people. That would be tremendous. Mm-hmm. So whether that happens this winter or three years from now, I don't know, but um, we're trying. That yeah. would be tremendously exciting. Yeah. Have you these connections that you've made with other farmers or other uh, growers, wheat growers, have those conversations led to any like um, things you might imp- implement next season thus far or, or, or more oppor- uh, different opportunities? Yeah. I mean, we have some different ideas for some varieties that we're going to grow. Okay. Um, based on, you know, other people's experiences and talking with uh, the Wheat Commission. And then... You know, it's been a real education uh, trying to sell everything this year mm-hmm. and understanding what, you know, what I can sell to someone who needs to mill it and have enough, enough, you know, profit in there to be able to sell it at a profit um, versus someone who is going to, a baker who's going to come and they only need a, a few hundred pounds for mm-hmm. the year. Yeah. And they're willing to spend extra on it because they can mill it at their house and they're able to experience these different flavors for their customers. And they're able to tell this story for their customers. Yeah. So that has been a real education. And then just seeing which varieties of the four that we planted seem to be in demand and which ones were kind of odd. Mm-hmm. Um, Do tell. Like what? What were the, what was like the successful uh, of the four varieties that you did? What was what seemed to be the most successful in like? Definitely Sonora. Okay, Sonora was, um, I think because again, you know, these aren't common varieties, so if you don't know anything, you maybe go with the one that you saw. Oh, Mike bakes with this one, so I want to get that one. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was definitely popular, and then surprisingly, the rye okay. was probably the huh. next most popular. Yeah. Um, so many people seem to. Well, at least what I was told was, when people come in and say, "Well, I, I don't know where to get freshly milled rye," mm-hmm. <clears throat> and especially something that was somewhat interesting. Um, they seem to have access to rye from that was sort of standard modern varieties, but to find something that was old and had an interesting flavor profile, yeah, that was. I think that showed a lot of foresight for you. Just like take a little gamble on this abutsi yeah. rye. Yeah, so th- those are probably the two. But yeah, like I said, we sold everything, so I don't know. Which, again, I think that in itself is an accomplishment. The fact that you, the first year you planted a new uh, crop that you, you sold it all out. And, and so does that, does that make sense for you moving forward? Like, 
like economically, like even in, in the quantities that you grew versus the old uh, format of, of rye, growing rye and tilling it back into the dirt. Is it economically sure. viable yet? It is not economically viable yet. So I should have said that up front because I feel like I've been doing a lot of bragging <laughs> and I should have said we didn't make any money. <clears throat> we basically were able to break even. But there are two reasons that I have hope for the future. <laughs> One is our costs were really high because we didn't know what we were doing. So, mm -hmm. you know, having little tiny patches and having to pay for the combine to clean out between, you know, we had to pay extra for him to do a clean out between varieties. Um, down to we applied five tons of compost, which was really expensive, probably overkill. Okay. Um, stuff like that. Our our expenses were high, and then we produced so poorly because of the drought mostly mm -hmm. that if we had we it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect that on a good year we would have produced almost twice as much as we did this year. Really. Okay. And so then we would have been in the black. I'd say my dad and I were doing the math yesterday, actually, and it looks like we're going to be on our 16 acres losing somewhere around three grand. So, I mean, that's not, you know, for our, our operation, where we're at, that's acceptable. <laughs> Okay. Uh, it would not be acceptable next year. Yeah. <laughs> but for the very first year, we can say, okay, we learned our lessons. Yeah. We more or less broke even. Again, you're talking about, you said you think you har you harvested 50% of maybe what you possibly could have. Yeah. Given the right precipitation. Yep. Okay. So if we had simply grown, you know, know knew what we were doing knew that we should have gotten water on earlier. If we had known all that stuff and we had farmed correctly, maybe we would have been able to increase by 40%, and that would have been essentially, that would have put us in the black. So mm -hmm. then, it, then it does become viable. Is it viable including, like, the mental energy, the, the emotional energy, the, the time no. sacrificed to family, like that, the, the no. chill winters that you used to have. <laughs> no, no. The, the, the self-doubt and terror of failure. No, you don't count that stuff. You, you ignore that and, uh, and keep going. Assuming that dissipates with every harvest and, and gets, you know, and you start to enjoy the the, re the re rewarding part of it more and more and stress out about it less and less and you get work it into a rhythm every year and it's getting in theory more predictable and uh, you're establishing those roots and ties to other farmers and growers and buyers uh, bakers is this something that like you're hopeful about that that you see potential in doing that you think has a future for Eck Farms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think it does. I think it, I, our hope right now is that it, 
it becomes a part of our regular rotation and that we continue to learn and, and get better and and try to grow the the market as best we can and especially locally. So, you know, this last year, 16 acres, this next year, if we can do 30, I mean, if I can get to the point where I can grow 5,000 acres of sustainable, high quality, you know, just beautiful grain for people in California, that, that'd be tremendous. And you think you can sell twice as many acres at this point? Well, I sure hope so. What are you thinking about expanding your business? <laughs> I don't know about 15, you know, uh, twice as many acres, but, uh, I mean, yeah, you, you, that's the thing is, though, is you can't do this for, like, the individual artisan baker in your hometown. It's got to, there's got to be a, a bigger market, but you, you said you're, you're doubling your acreage, so you've got to, you've got to think that. You sold out this year, you're thinking there's room to grow next year. Yeah. What gives I you that be confidence? Because I could have sold double this year. Wow. There were people whose orders I had to cut down. Wow. People who I had to turn away. Who People who came to me saying, hey, I would like 4,000 pounds of this. And I would say, I got 800 pounds of this. <laughs> um <laughs> So that's great. That's amazing. There, that's so cool. Already this year, if I had doubled my acres for this year, we would have still sold out. Wow. So I, that I think, you know, it's little bit by little bit. I'm, I mean, <laughs> the idea of farming thirty-five acres to someone in Nebraska is like a joke, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's tiny, tiny, tiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, for us, it's. You know, it's a it's a significant step, but something that's manageable. And then if if we can make that work, then yeah, you know, increase it as we can. Yeah. Well, what I've always kind of the you know, I, you're a romantic, John. I'm a romantic <laughs> too. Like that, you know, we're not like putting in this work just because it's it's the brass tacks works out and it's you know going to put us in the black. Nope. This is stuff that we enjoy doing. We get a lot of like um, energy from and, and positive feedback and. Uh, but that, and that's part of it for me is like, I, I've always, you know, growing up, uh, in the next town over in Patterson, like mm -hmm. in, in being, uh, a little bit of a historian and like knowing like the history of the central Valley, like I've loved the fact that before irrigation and before the dairies and, you know, this all used to be wheat country, you know, we had all these Midwestern, uh, farmers come you know, turn of the century, early uh, 1900s, uh, the new wheat, you know, the, the X, you know? Yeah. The X are, are those people that came over and, and brought their their wheat farming to the Central Valley, to Turlock. And, and, but it hasn't been done in 100 years. And so, you know, 35 acres is, is a, you know, small beans compared to the Midwest. But like, this is, it's, it's new territory here. And it's like it's uh, you're revitalizing almost a lost art in this part of the country, and you're you're growing like uh, heirloom heritage grains that are, you know, are specially uh, 
fit for this area and uh so I, I to me that's it's i don't know that's the romantic part of it to me is that like you're, you're bringing him back this kind of like lost art form well, and, and like, it, your, your own history it's your own family history too yeah i mean i like the sound of that <laughs> how do um people get something like this going in their own community um, for example uh sour south auburn wants to know what it would take to convince alabama farmers to grow wheat <laughs> obviously what you, you don't know the answer <laughs> to that but how do people in you know if if other than uh, seducing them with a a, a book mm. on grain growing like uh-huh. I did, uh-huh. um, which really started this whole thing for you. Yes. Um, how do uh, farmers, growers, millers, how do they get something like this even off the ground in their uh, community? Uh, there's two ways to take that answer. One way is to show them that it's profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, to show them to be willing to pay them a decent price to help them connect to other bakeries, distilleries, help them find that market mm. and imagine what that market could be. Farmers f- live on a on a rage, razor thin margin. I think there's that that part of it. Show them at least that in some vague sense it's financially viable. But then. The other side is, and <laughs> I'm just going to say it, I think showing them that it's beautiful. Yeah. Farmers are, like anyone, old and tired <laughs> and probably have a lot of debt, but they got into it for some reason because soil and plants and the sunrise mm. and flavors and smells that you can't describe because they're too beautiful thrills our hearts (laughs) and sometimes farmers need to remember why they started yeah and if someone can go to them and say we can create something beautiful and good most farmers would be willing to take a pay cut to do it yeah. Well, uh, that's that's well said. I, I if I haven't uh, reinforced that enough, John, I think what you're doing is is beautiful and good. Like I, I I'm so excited that we connected. That uh, however you, you your eyes came across my Instagram feed one day <laughs> two years ago, and, uh, and you brought me some potatoes because this has been just so. Um, uh, life-giving to me just you know like we we started uh milling some of your grain or you you have spent several hours uh the night before my my bakes uh milling some of your grain just for the the opportunity to like sell it to uh some of my customers to say hey this is the bread you're used to this is the and, and this is the flour that i i make your your bread with yeah. Uh, you could you could bake with some cookies with it tonight if you want to, and so it, it's just been a it's for me it's been such a a fun journey, 
Um, I am like honored that you like even like contemplate the concept, uh, much less like invite me to like hang out and, and uh, plant it with you and, and and hang around for the harvest. And uh, so it's yeah. This is again. This is um. Good and beautiful, uh, life giving for me. So, um, it's awesome. I highly encourage people to follow along on your Instagram feed. How can people um, get in touch with you? I, you said you're already sold out <laughs> this year, <laughs> but how can they follow your progress and possibly buy your grain in in harvests and seasons to come? Yeah. Um, well, I have a half-built website and a half-built online store because I was concerned that I wasn't going to sell anything. And then we just sold out before I even had a chance to complete that stuff. So honestly, Instagram is the best mm-hmm. place to follow along. It's it's just for our farms. It's, you know, Eck Farms. But so you're going to get a mix of of embarrassing photos of me and uh, sweet potatoes and and some wheat stuff, but you can message me on there. And uh, I mean, right now, the like I said, we're we're sold out, so that means that we won't have anything available until you know June, July, probably like July, August of next year. Okay. Yeah. Wildly sour wants to know if you ship to Southern California. Probably not until next year, is what you're saying. Not until next year. We have shipped down to LA. We've shipped to New Jersey. Um, I don't know anything about shipping, so we've been using flat rate boxes, mm-hmm. and it costs an arm and a leg. So we're trying to figure out how to fix the shipping. Yeah. Um, it's just hard to ship that much weight for a reasonable price. But yeah, our hope. Our hope is to be able to ship it um, anywhere people are that want to get it. Yeah. But also, I would encourage people to check out um, GoldenStateGrains.com. Is that what it is? GoldenStateGrains.com, I think. On there, it lists a bunch of different farmers across the state of California. And there might be someone who's closer to you, whose farm you could go out and visit, build a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Um, that are that, I know there's... There's several farms listed on there from all the way up in Northern California down um, through the L.A. area. So check it out and see if there's a farmer near you who you could get some from. Okay. Again, this is like something that's like kind of new, you know, like this is you're you're breaking ground here. You know, it's specifically in the Central Valley. So like there might be a few farmers in Southern California or Northern California doing this. Or in different parts of the country, but uh, that's what I love about this is it's it's new, it's uh, it's benefiting our, benefiting our community, and um, providing healthy foods. And it's like you said, it's it's good, it's beautiful, it's it's something that like uh, I've I've loved being a part of. And uh, so anyway, John, thank you for uh, coming on the podcast. And uh, uh, inviting me into your home, sharing a few beers with me. Uh, these are again, these are the kind of conversations we have uh, a f- every every few weeks um, that I'm I'm happy to share and excited to share with uh, the Sourdough Podcast community. And hopefully, we can get something like what we've got going uh, in every 
community across the country and uh, just bring some amazing uh, produce and flour and bread. Uh, Absolutely. And I would just say, too, that if if anyone is, you know, once my unearned, confident responses to their questions, um, message me. Let me know. That, that idea of passing on the little bit that I have learned so far, I would love it. I'll message me. I'll give you my phone number. We'll talk. Um, and any way that I can help, I would love to. Great. All right, John, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out with me this evening. And uh, we will catch up on my next pop-up and uh, sell some flour, sell some bread, and keep spreading the uh, local grain economy gospel uh, together. <laughs> right. Thanks, Mike. Hey, John. Thanks for listening. The Sourdough Podcast is produced by Michael Hilburn and edited by Caleb Sexton. All music is by Weston Perry. Thanks again to our main sponsor of this episode, Tyler at Wire Monkey Shop. You can find their products and support the Bakers in Need Fund created by Tyler by clicking on links in the show notes of this episode. And be sure to head over to thesourdoughpodcast.com where you can find exclusive recipes from our guests as well as cookbook and gear recommendations, previous episodes, and more. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the podcast by purchasing a Sourdough Podcast t-shirt, coffee mug, or UFO long. If you're strapped for cash, a five-star rating and review on iTunes would also go a long way, and you would help tremendously to share the podcast with others. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.